0: Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage where I continue my chat with British teacher Brian Edgar who's been researching his father Tommy who was a baker here during the Second World War. Tommy Edgar was a Stanley stay out in the first part of the war allowed to remain outside the civilian internment camp because he baked bread for the city's hospitals. He was housed at the French Mission in Causeway Bay. One of the women who would queue up for his bread was the Macanese Evelina Marquez de Oliveira and they would marry in June 1942.
1: Uh, At St Joseph Church, um, the best man was a man called Owen Evans who uh, was uh, one of the drivers who, who worked with my father. We're looking at the wedding photographs which amazingly have survived. What strikes me is that almost everybody looks scared and depressed, which is not surprising at all, but it does show that the strain of living in occupied Hong Kong was telling on people. Otherwise, not much is is known about the wedding other than some of the people who were there and where it took place. Uh, Captain Tanaka is in the photograph, and that's uh, an indication of the the relationship he had, not just with my father, but with, I think, some of the other, the Europeans. He seems to have been particularly friendly with the bakers while they were uh, in exchange house, and he was in in command. Um, The only documentation is the photographs and the grim faces of almost everybody, and Tanaka's presence.
0: What happened to Captain Tanaka?
1: He left Hong Kong suddenly. Selwyn Clark says that, and he says there was a rumour that he was sent to what was then called Canton, and... um, he was executed for being too friendly to the enemy. Uh, I think he was probably just transferred to to another front. He was he was a communications officer, so obviously no, they wouldn't let once communications in hong kong are set up they're not going to to leave him here when there's going to be more important work done elsewhere
0: so what do you think about your heritage
1: i just wish well, she taught me cantonese and portuguese when i was young <laughs> well because when right after we came back to england in 1951 because she's eurasian because she's different she wants to fit in so she becomes more english than the english i was i was the last person to be taught uh, a foreign language uh, like that before going to school because she was really trying to, to be middle class in
0: English. Having uh, perhaps more recently discovered what your parents went through mm-hmm. and, and, and what your father did, how does it make you view your parents?
1: I'm just amazed that they and anyone can survive, can have survived those, those years not just of deprivation but of, but of sheer terror. Uh, Day in, day out.
0: So your mother, who had been outside, had she been living with her family prior to the wedding? I think she
1: must have stayed with the landlord, the Lane Crawford man who knew my father. Uh, Her family's in Macau, so...
0: So what did your mum do here?
1: She was a saleswoman. I think at that time she was selling jewellery. Probably then she, she kept that job during the early months of the war... But I think they decided in June 1942 that they were going to throw in their lot together. What happened to one would happen to the other. But the other thing that happened in June 1942 was that the British Army Aid Group sent its first agents into Hong Kong. Now the British Army Aid Group is uh, the resistance organisation, led by British people, but of course staffed, By um, largely by Chinese people, incredibly brave agents. And some of those agents came to Hong Kong and they they came to the bankers in their their waterfront hotel and they came here to the French hospital and they they began to make contact.
0: While Edgar baked bread, Dr Selwyn Selwyn Selwyn-Clark, the former medical director, was also allowed to stay out to keep hygiene in the territory. But as I hear from Brian Edgar today, the situation would deteriorate.
1: Selwyn-Clark has a very difficult relationship with the british army aid group they do cooperate on some medical drug smuggling on a couple of occasions but he his basic principle is he will not do anything that will stop him doing his public health work and his illegal relief work as well so he will not get involved in military espionage so it's it's a difficult relationship with selwyn clark but of course it puts everyone here in a much greater danger because, you know, they are now, as well as this illegal relief organisation, everyone to some degree or another is either in contact with the BAG BA, or you know, the person down the corridor is. And, of course, everyone's afraid that if they are seen talking to the wrong person at the wrong time, even if they're not themselves spying, and I've got no evidence that my father ever uh, cooperated or ever carried out any military espionage, because it's that fear of guilt by association. Interestingly, that didn't happen to the British. They're almost the only other nationality that the Japanese played it strictly by the rules in. They only interrogated those they had evidence against, but it was certainly true for other nationalities. You'd be seen talking to the wrong person in the street at the wrong time, and you were in for a a nasty session of questioning.
0: Dr. Selwyn Clark, his work uh, did help those in Stanley and elsewhere, uh, provide. I mean, it was extremely difficult to even source drugs. Mm. Uh, things got worse as the time went on. Right. People were suffering from malnourishment, from dysentery, uh, probably from malaria, and um, in terms of, and also from depression. When I think about people in those times, the, the daily anxiety. I don't know how, how you cope with that. Exactly. But uh, in terms of Selwyn Clark himself, he actually was um, he was tortured.
1: Yes, um, knowing now from this research trip a little more about how much he did, it amazes me that he got away with it for so long. From from the very beginnings, he was suspected by the, the Kempeitai, the Japanese gendarmerie, uh, and followed, uh, spied on. But somehow, but I think mainly because he had this protector, a colonel, who was a, the Japanese medical officer, I think they... They couldn't touch him without plausible evidence and from at least October 1942 they were trying to get that evidence by brutally questioning his associates but there's a hell of a lot of courage in in wartime Hong Kong. Nobody gave the the gendarmerie any plausible evidence where they could take Selwyn Clark in over over the head of his protector. Now late April 1943 that colonel left and it was more or less the end of the week he left. Sunday, May the 2nd, 1943, You're out there in the compound and in the hospital, this would have been a scene of fear and chaos because the, the Japanese gendarmes uh, and the Japanese Navy stormed into to the French hospital compound. Gates were locked. Probably at dawn, if not before, Selwyn Clark, they burst into his room. They allowed him to dress. His distraught wife and young daughter. They took him away. They also took away another doctor called Doctor Doctor Frederick Bunji, a well-known uh, doctor in Hong Kong, who had been. Uh, I think he probably was, or certainly, helping Doctor Selvin Clark. But I have not yet found um, any records that specify his role. Gates are locked. Everyone is kept in here, and. The place is thoroughly searched. Uh, about midday, they uh, took away one of the public health workers who had been working with Selwyn Clark, and who was, in fact, a British Army A-group agent. The records are not so clear as to who exactly was arrested on that day. I think probably, as well as the three people I've mentioned, three others were arrested, but they're not so certain as, as the arrests that I've mentioned.
0: So is this from your research or from your father?
1: This is from research. My father It's interesting, my father never mentioned the French hospital except in an, an article on the technicalities of baking in Hong Kong. He wrote for his trade paper in 1946. When I first came to Hong Kong in 1996, uh, I asked my mother where was I born so I could visit it, and she said the French hospital, that's what this was normally known, it was run by French sisters. She didn't say, and that's where we were interned. I think this this was all too terrifying for them. Stanley, yes, they did mention, but not the period in this compound. Selwyn Clark, as I said, and probably four or five others were arrested here on May the 2nd, 1943. May the 7th, 1943, 18 people, including my parents, get sent to Stanley.
0: So they're interned at Stanley. You said uh, that they didn't really talk about their war experience as much to you. Um, but did you find that, that that sort of wartime experience, did it colour their behaviour later on in life at all? I'm sure it coloured it at every point,
1: because when you've lived with that level of fear and deprivation for so long, you can't go to bed at night or sit down and eat a meal in a way that isn't in some ways coloured by it and yet the paradox is it's very hard to say in what way you know, from talking to my father's relatives he was pretty much the same man who returned from Hong Kong as had gone out in 1938 my mother was um, you know, rather obsessional about cleaning her, her house um Middle-class woman in southern England in 1950s wasn't. I grew up in Windsor, for goodness' sake. So, <laughs> the middle-class housewives weren't sluttish in Windsor in those days. So um, you could say that that kind of obsessionality and cleanliness. She liked. She liked her privacy because she was with 20. 20- yes. 25 people in 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 bungalow d in stanley camp uh including dr Selwyn clark's wife and daughter and lady greyburn Vandela greyburn had been arrested during the the kempatai strike back and he died of of malnutrition in stanley prison so she was with well my parents were with these people in, in bungalow d and as i said it must have um affected them but it's very hard to say why, but i tell you one interesting thing. You know, I said my mother cleaned a house. It was a bungalow. And when I first saw the bungalows in Stanley, there were um, A, B, C, D, E, and F in those days, uh, they, they reminded me a huge amount of the one my father designed and built in Windsor. So uh, the, the, the mood in... United Kingdom after the war was put the war behind you which of course was great I mean they built a welfare state they built up the economy and they didn't dwell on the suffering but in some ways those experiences were so strong it always called, called people back and you can see this in various ways and I think the most striking way is when my father didn't buy a bungalow he designed it personally and it really is uncannily reminiscent of the the one he was interned in in Stanley. So what happened to Dr Selwyn Clark? As I said on May the 2nd 1943 he and Maybe four or five other people from the French hospital were arrested. So were dozens of people in town believed to to be associated with him. He proved absolutely unbreakable. He's a man getting on in years, not in good health, um, after the deprivations of living in occupied Hong Kong for over a year. He resisted all, all the brutality of the interrogation for weeks, for months. He was sentenced to death and... Nothing could make him reveal a single name. He was sentenced to death, as I said. The sentence was then mitigated to to ten years, which was in effect a death sentence. But then, a kind of uh, incredible thing happened. remember my mother and and father are living with um, 25 people, including Hilda and Mary Selwyn Clark in Bungalow D in Stanley. December the 6th, 1944, they were moved, Hilda and Mary, to Mao chung camp in Kowloon, in Argyle Street. And um, two days later, they were joined by Dr. Selwyn Clark. There was a big um, amnesty. December the 8th, 1944, was the third anniversary of the... Uh, attack on the on Hong Kong, on Pearl Harbour. So to celebrate this, the Japanese released, um, well, I've come across about ten names, and I'm sure there were more than that, including Dr. Selbin Klein. It probably helped that he was unbreakable. He never confessed to anything. December the 8th, he joined Hilda and Mary and he became medical officer, and in fact, the the man in charge of this this small camp in Kowloon. Uh, at the end of the war, he was involved with, uh, with another remarkable man called Arthur May in hoisting up the first Union Jack, probably in, in Hong Kong, which Hilda selden Clark raised in Mao Chong camp. But then in, in a well-known episode that is another story for today, uh, Arthur May crawled out under the barbed wire and um, hoisted a flag on the peak, which could be seen all over. Uh, Hong Kong. It was a sign to everybody that the war was over.
0: My thanks to Brian Edgar talking there on his parents and the Stanley stay out. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage.